0: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. My name is Autumn Wilkie, and I'm a host with the New Books Network. Today, I'm joined by Dania Glabau to talk about her newly released book, Food Allergy Advocacy, Parenting, and the Politics of Care. Dania is a medical anthropologist and science and technology scholar who researches patient activism, the political economy of the global pharmaceutical industry, and pharmacist and feminist cybercultures. She's a faculty member at the NYU Tandon School of Engineering as a visiting industry assistant professor and the interim director of the science and technology studies program. Danya, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I would love to know a little bit more about what prompted you to write Food Allergy Advocacy uh, and how activism related to food allergies became part of your, your area of research.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me today, Autumn. Um, So I was actually prompted to get interested in food allergies uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, You know, number one, I was really interested in um, initially in the pharmaceutical industry. And then um, as I went through grad school, increasingly in patient experience of illnesses that are kind of hard to pin down, Um, or as um, anthropologist Joseph Duman, has called them illnesses you have to fight to get. Um, And I went through the process of being diagnosed with allergies myself as an adult. And this was, it it kind of sparked some of those ideas for me. Um, The diagnostic process used uh, skin tests as well as blood tests. They didn't say the same thing. So there was a certain element of physician judgment in uh, my own diagnosis there. And then there was also my own patient history Um, my history of things that had made me feel bad that was also taken into account. And so I thought that was really interesting as I was digging more and more into STS literature on health. Uh, Really interesting that um, we often think of diseases as these really discrete objects, things that you can be positively diagnosed with. But I was really fascinated by the way that this process was really iterative. And, um, and uh, it even kind of contested um, within the process. So so that was one thing for my own life that kind of piqued my interest. Um, and then as I started kind of digging into the topic of allergies a little bit more with some my first round of research interviews in late 2013. I was initially interested in the scientific knowledge around food allergies uh, and and even around allergies more broadly. You know, coming out of a science and technology studies program, that was kind of the logical place to start, right? What are the scientists thinking about this? Um, And as I kind of got into that, I realized that the action so to speak was much more with people experiencing allergies, and especially food allergies, um, that that was where some of these issues of contestation around what the illness is, or what it means, or how best to diagnose it, were really affecting people's lives. Um, And I also encountered a lot of physicians who are very certain that they knew exactly what was going on with food allergies. Um, There wasn't a whole lot of conversation to be had about some of these fuzzy edges that I think a lot of patients were feeling. So that's why I, I sort of Pivoted away from the scientific story more towards the patient experience, and ultimately uh, towards uh, health activism related to food allergies. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and and really, you know, you've been working in this area uh, since twenty thirteen. You said you did your first round of uh, interviews and sort of gathering of data. Uh, How have you observed the landscape of food allergy activism evolving over? nearly the past decade, you know, sort of as you as you really got engaged in this topic uh, until now, sort of post book, um, what are some of the things that you've observed?
1: Yeah, that's a really fascinating question, and in some ways it tracks along with some evolving conversations about care, about the role of schools, about the role of extended family and non-family caretakers in children's lives, and in some ways it kind of has its own momentum and story. So, for example, one big shift in the last nine years, almost a decade, uh, is that a lot of the children um, uh, of the people that I interviewed or the people that I was meeting and talking to during my research, a lot of their children have Grown up. (laughs) They've gone to college or they've gone from elementary school and preschool through middle school and high school. And so one of the things that happened within the food allergy world over this period is that the institutions and the problems that people were focused on really changed. So a lot of my research and a lot of the book really concentrates on what parents were telling me about the experience of having young children with food allergies elementary school, preschool, um, even babies. As time has gone by, um, shifting away from public schools to private universities, for example, there's a different regulatory landscape, different challenges, and also different stages of the development of the children and young adults that really shaped a lot of the concerns. So whereas a a safety concern uh, for a baby or a young child might be about how babysitters handle food or react to an anaphylactic reaction, for college students, Students. There are uh, questions about intimacy, questions about impulsivity, trying to push boundaries, uh, questions about whether those now young adults picked up the skills to self-advocate for safety, uh, for asking questions about where their food comes from. Um, And again, it's also a different set of institutions. Uh, Universities respond differently uh, in terms of the kinds of accommodations that they would give for a disability or uh, a health condition like food allergies than uh, elementary schools would do. Um, They are more accountable to uh, the young adults themselves than to the parents, for example. Um, And on a campus-like setting, you have different types of spaces and different uh, levels of obligation that a young person would have, you know, are they required to be in the dining hall? Not really. Uh, is that the most convenient place for them to eat? And sh- should they in a perfect world have access to safe food there? Yes, probably. So there, there's some kind of fuzziness around the ways that uh, regulations translate, uh, regulations around um, around disability translate into concrete on the ground actions. Uh, And that was, you know, that's been a big shift. Um, I think in terms of some of the cultural dynamics, I think the COVID-19 pandemic has brought some of the caretaking issues that I read about in my book to broader prominence in the general culture and in the sort of general consciousness, at least here in the United States. So some of the um, some of the really acute needs around child care, not only child care, but an appropriate child care provider for your child, your family, specific health conditions that your child might have, all of these things have really been heightened uh, by COVID and have been brought to the fore for people who aren't necessarily parents where maybe they hadn't thought about it, before um, so so it's been kind of interesting to see some of these concerns and um, struggles around finding the right caretaker that were a huge part of many of the interviews I did kind of coming to more public prominence in the last couple of
0: years mm-hmm. yeah. And I, and I know in, particularly in chapter two, sort of when you're talking about, uh, you know, sort of who's to blame or, you know, sort of the, the context of, of where do food allergies come from, who, you know, what are all of the sort of like pseudoscience and myth and, you know, like guesses about where this is coming from or what contributes. Um, I know one of the things you talked about is mother blame and, and sort of the ways that, that um, in particular um, caretakers, um, mothers in particular, um, really are, are, Hold in, in multiple directions in terms of, like, needing to provide care, being the first person that people might blame if something goes wrong. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of those those pieces that you really um, begin to go into in the book? Sure. Sure. Um- you know, I
1: think the mother blame one is a is a really interesting one, and, and this is one that I'm I'm starting to think about in some new dimensions since having a child of my own about a year ago, um, and then I'm starting to think about in relation to some uh, some potential new research questions or projects. You know, I think since having my own kid, I really appreciate uh, to an even deeper extent, right? This this pressure that is put on parents and especially on mothers to be perfect all the time, to always have the answers for their kids, um, and and also the kind of competing pressures that people are under between, for example, family and healthcare providers. So that's one of the one of the big sticking points in a lot of the stories I heard during this research is my doctor tells me to do one thing and I trust them. So I want to do that. But my mother keeps trying to feed my kid peanuts or milk uh, or doesn't check the labels or, you know, doesn't do X, Y and Z that I request of them that my doctor has told me I need to do. Um, so, so you know, I, I kind of feel this in my bones now in a way that I maybe didn't uh, during the research. Um, and I'm really interested in other areas around, especially around kind of baby and young ch- children care, um, where there's this really uh, heightened sense of pressure, right? So the food allergy case is is kind of a special case in some ways, right? It's a particular condition that is diagnosable where there's a particular medical literature, and it's not every child who's going to have food allergies, right? It's maybe about one in eight or one in 10 are the current estimates, Um and so I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in next steps, starting to think about, well, what about those recommendations that are blanket recommendations for all children? How are those affecting parents in terms of uh, feeling a certain amount of, of mother guilt uh, for mothers, for example, um, undermining confidence? Um, or conversely, another thing I talk about, uh, in, the kind of flip side of mother blame is having confidence in your own theories and your own experience and, and kind of coming up with with narratives or explanations that are different than what you hear from your doctors, right? Um, Are there uh, points in uh, the caretaking adventure, let's say, uh, where, you know, the the pressure uh, and the feeling of failure is so heightened that it becomes a kind of common point for people to uh, work with these alternative narratives or explanations. So that's something I'm, I'm really interested in uh, right now, um, kind of extending some of what I found and some of what I write about in the book.
0: Yeah. So in the book, you, you describe bits of your ethnographic, ethnographic process and, and the ways and the years that you spent really collecting the information that goes into this book um, through interviews, through field notes. Um, I'm wondering what some of the, the various contexts and artifacts that you drew some of your data from, particularly in sort of that field note and, you know, like that process and, and sort of the scope of, of where, where the, the complex narratives in the book come from.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for asking about this. So... I described this project as a nearly three-year multi-sided ethnographic project. Um, so there were kind of multiple phases to the research. The earliest phase, as I mentioned uh, earlier in our conversation, uh, was about five or six months where I uh, did ethnographic research in a couple of different allergy clinics in the United States, um, using the parlance of physicians themselves. I was shadowing them. I was shadowing is a a sort of term they use uh, when they talk about how they train doctors. So that's how we talked about that relationship often. Uh, Shadowing a couple of physicians to kind of get a feel for what clinical allergy care looked like. And again, that was both environmental and food allergies. Um, I had the opportunity to uh, sit in on some physician training. Uh, So I attended a class for medical residents in allergy and immunology. It's kind of a crash course on clinical allergies allergy, since a lot of their training tended to be very theoretical. So this was like, how do you fill a syringe? How do you mix extracts? How do you do those really practical things? Um, So that was, again, a kind of great uh, background. And I was very lucky to kind of walk into a setting where that was available. Um, But again, you know, it, it felt like um, many clinicians I met kind of felt like they had all the answers or felt like they had good enough answers. Um, and and the kind of more contested area was with some of the patients that I was uh, starting to meet and starting to talk to. So the kind of next phase of my research was reaching out to um, reaching out to parents who were kind of leaders in the food allergy advocacy space. So food allergy advocacy, as I kind of think of it, and as I encountered it ethnographically, uh, is a kind of diffuse network of parents, mostly mothers throughout the United States who are advocating for their children and the needs of food allergic children in general at a variety of levels. So that could be working with a local school on an accommodation plan for their own child or uh, kind of giving advice to other parents in a local district on how to get appropriate accommodations. That could be, at the time, uh, getting involved in stock epinephrine campaigns at the state legislative level, so um, different measures to make epinephrine auto-injectors, like the EpiPen, more available in public spaces like schools and restaurants, or it could be... helping to build the national network of food allergy advocates. So different things like conferences and email lists and websites and internet forums uh, that connected all these people working at state and local levels into a a sort of loosely coordinated national network and even international, even building connections, for example, to Canadian uh, or UK-based organizations doing similar work in those different national contexts. So that was kind of how I encountered it, this kind of multi-layered, multi-leveled network. Um, and so my research tried to <laughs> tried to explore each of those levels to a certain extent. So again, uh, starting out connecting with some local and regional support group leaders, again, mostly mothers um, uh, getting involved or building community um, after their own child had developed food allergies, um, talking to other members of support support groups or other members of those communities that those leaders came from. Um, I attended some local and regional uh, events, um, so things uh, like a, an info night at a uh, at a public school uh, or a small specialized conference for people in the food industry uh, who wa- wanted to brush up on food allergy safety, um, all the way up to attending some national conferences. So I attended a couple of national conferences organized by and for food allergy advocates, Um again, to the, that sort of allowed them to build these networks of advocacy, connect efforts across states and across localities. Um, so, um, you know, these are your typical kind of, you know, travel to a convention center near Disneyland or in a big uh, city out west or something like that, um, you know, your, your kind of standard conferences. Um, and finally, I also attended a medical conference. Once I was really deep into that advocacy world, um, kind of coming back up and then reconnecting uh, with some of the medical science, seeing how things were evolving, um, and trying to understand, you know, what parts of the patient experience were kind of rising to the level of interest or attention for uh, physicians, right? I had seen a lot of things going the other way, medical knowledge being incorporated into advocacy, um, but but again, kind of seeing what flowed um, in the other direction with that kind of later visit to a medical conference. Um, so again, very multi-sided, very multi-leveled, um, very much uh, a kind of postmodern, <laughs> you might say, uh, ethnographic experience exploration.
0: Yeah yeah and, and very very embedded in, in lots of different ways in, in sort of this, this conversation. Um, what has that meant for you um, sort of post you know finishing sort of collecting specific data for this book? how have you how if at all have you stayed connected within the world of food allergy advocacy?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, you know, there, in any ethnographic project, you build all different types of relationships with the people that you do research with. Um, and so I, you, you know, some of those relationships, uh, I've maintained, um, some of the relationships in the medical community, for example, have become professional relationships. Um, and, uh, and I've done different sorts of professional uh, collaborations um. Other relationships are just kind of saying hi, how are you on social media, sharing news via email or DM when something interesting around food allergy comes out, um, and so um, so I would say you know the the relationships that have continued are
0: as diverse as um, the people that I encountered.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, which I I think kind of takes me into my next question, which really gets into the the subtitle of the book, you know, Parenting and the Politics of Care and and sort of diving a little bit deeper into what specifically did your research reveal about parenting and the politics of care in the United States, um, particularly as, you know, sort of that related to um, gender, race, you know, some of the the different nuances that you really uh, go into in the book about sort of the, the politics of care in the United States.
1: Yeah. So the way I framed it in the book was to talk about, um, the concept of, uh, reproductive politics. Um, and I meant that term kind of expansively. So not only the politics of having babies, right? reproduction, right. A, a very fraught set of politics in the current U S moment, uh, to be sure. Um, but also the ways that, um, other aspects of building a a home and a household and raising children can actually become uh, quite political, uh, more in a kind of Marxist feminist uh, sense of um, reproductive work or reproductive labor. Right. So reproduction, in my view, isn't just about having babies. It's also about all of the work that we do to maintain a household, to make sure that people are fed, clean, healthy, have a safe place to go in the middle of the day, um, so on and so forth. Um, And along with that comes um, the kind of reproduction of identity, uh, social position, privilege through the generations as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is where um, I I start to get into some of these questions of race, class, and gender. Um, So part of what I see as being reproduced through um, health advocacy, Work like the work done around food allergies um, is a is uh, at times a particular um, a particular view of the world, um, mm-hmm. which we can map on in various ways to different markers of identity. So I think this is easier to explain, kind of by example. And um, so, for example, a lot of parents uh, told me about how their hopes for their children uh, did not always perfectly map onto um, what they were able to do with their children. Um, and a lot of this came out around birthday parties. This was something that was very um, kind of difficult for a lot of parents of food allergic children. And you can kind of imagine why, right? A kid's birthday party is centered around cake, centered around food. Um, Cake has lots of allergens in it. It, You know, a typical cake will have dairy and eggs. It might have multiple kinds of nuts. Uh, If you buy it from a grocery store, it might have some soy flour or other soy ingredients to maintain the texture. So hits a lot of the uh, top eight or top 10 common allergens. Uh, that uh, people are often dealing with. Um, And so parents kind of go down this spiral sometimes of um, feeling like they're not able to provide a quote unquote normal childhood uh, because they aren't able to have a typical birthday party or they aren't able to have their kids do typical after school activities. and my kind of contention is that some of this anxiety around food and social settings is, is anxiety or concerns about food. Um, But I think some of it is also about social status, right? It's about having the nice house with a backyard where your family can come and gather around a cake, right? Um, Which is a very classed and very raced reality in the United States, right? Who even has a home or house? Has access to a big park where you can assemble to have a big birthday party with a cake, maybe with a pool, uh, maybe uh, with, uh, you know, an ice cream shop down the street, right? That That is very, uh, very much kind of race and class vision of the good life uh, for a family or for a child. You know, a similar, I, I think, goes for, um, you know, some of the concern about after-school activities. Certainly, of course, there are real safety concerns Concerns about someone else like a coach or a babysitter um, or a teacher that your your child doesn't normally spend time with being in charge of them and trying to keep them safe with food allergies. Um, but at the same time, right, it assumes that that is going to be an important part of every child's life if that's one of the priorities of a movement, right? Um, and uh, there are plenty of children, you know, in my kind of in my own rural upbringing not everyone played sports. Right. Uh, there wasn't a big culture of after school activities. You were kind of done with school and then you went home uh, unless you had a real passion for one of these particular activities. Or we can think on the flip side. Right. In. Um, Uh, In underserved neighborhoods, for example, where I live in New York City, part of the push uh, for funding for education is push for after school activities, because there's a lack of access in places like this as well. Um, So again, you see some some of the concerns and some of the focus in a lot of the interviews I did really kind of focuses on a particular vision of what a typical childhood is like. It's a childhood with big backyard birthday parties with a big cake and t- kids doing after-school activities. But in reality, um, that uh, is access to those things really is shaped by race and class in the United States.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what sorts of things would you like listeners to know about food allergy activism and the needs and rights of food allergic children in the U.S.? Sure. I mean, I think this is a, a
1: great question to think about, again, in our current moment, when people are really thinking about child care, right, um, and thinking about what is necessary uh, for child care. You know, I, th- I think one aspect of it is, um, it, you know, Taking care of a child or watching out for anyone, child or adult, with food allergies is both very simple and very difficult. Um, It's a lot of attention to detail because of the way that uh, the US food system operates. Uh, In particular, there are a lot of additives that you might not expect that are in foods, right? There can be milk and soy ingredients in bread, when you might just think that bread would only be an issue for someone with a weed allergy, for example. Um, So so there's a lot of attention to detail and a lot of things that are counterintuitive, um, especially in the United States. and I think that really kind of highlights um, or, or makes people confront um, how much work really goes into child care or into caring for anybody, um, whether they have a medical uh, condition or not. Um, This attention to detail can be really difficult, again, for non-parent caretakers, even grandparents, let alone babysitters and teachers, to kind of wrap their heads around. Um, And it takes a certain amount of compassion a certain amount of trust in the primary caretakers to kind of take their word for the fact that these extra precautions are needed. Um, I also think it it makes a great case for um, why... Child care providers are actually highly skilled professionals, right? Um, if they are, uh, you know, taking care of, uh, you know, again, one in eight or one in 10 children dealing with a food allergy issue, right? These are really specialized things that even parents might take years to learn and to really internalize. Um, and yet we're kind of expecting other caretakers to pick up on them instantly, right? Right no, that's a skill, right? That's a skill that we need to have some, um, uh, we need to have support for, we need to have professional support. There should be pay, uh, for, uh, becoming and staying up to date on these types of things, right? And this is just one condition, right? This is just food allergies. You know, think of all the common, uh, childhood conditions, chronic illnesses, disabilities. Um, I think it really underscores, um, how much expertise there is, uh, in caretaking, um, um, and, and, and that's something that, you know, again, the United States is really trying to reckon with at this moment. Yeah.
0: Well, and I think I think that kind of uh, leads into, and you, and you talked a little bit about this at the beginning of our interview and our time together, but uh, some of the pieces around sort of epinephrine as well, and, and sort of thinking about, um, you know, I think there's a lot of narratives in the in the book where folks are talking about like the decision making about to use it or not use it, and the cost, and you you know all sorts of sort of the 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 sort of decision making related to or or. Decision making is probably the wrong word, but things related to epinephrine and, you know, sort of some of your area of research around like the global pharmaceutical industry and economy and, and stuff like that. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit specifically about sort of the, the medical care for for food allergy and, and, and thinking about the, the costs and the access and, and some of the challenges that happen there as well.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And and kind of linking back to your earlier question about what has changed over the last decade, this has been an area where there's been a ton of change. So when I was doing my research, the main phar- pharmaceutical intervention for food allergies uh, was epinephrine, usually administered as an epinephrine auto-injector. So again, that's your EpiPen or your AVIQ, two of the main brands that you'll find in the United States. And epinephrine is a very, powerful hormone it also goes by the name adrenaline in kind of common parlance and what it does is when someone is already having an allergic reaction it basically stops and partially reverses that allergic reaction um, so it's very powerful um, it's uh, it acts in a different way than an antihistamine would do um, antihistamines in fact can mask food allergy reactions and so they're not recommended as as a first-line medication. Epinephrine actually stops and reverses the symptoms. So it's very powerful and uh, very important for people with food allergy to have access to this. This has also been one of the drugs that has um, undergone significant price increases in the past 10 to 15 years. Um, As I write about in one of the later chapters of my book, um, the price um, went from $50 or less per injector to um, auto injectors by the main uh, companies in the United States, only being sold in two packs um, and being sold for $300, $500 even more potentially uh, for a two-pack, right? So not only do you have to buy more than one in many situations now, um, each of the uh, injectors in that pack also costs multiple times more uh, than it did when I was a child, right, or, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. Um, so there's a significant uh, issue with access here. And again, I think this is one of the places where um, some of the kind of class positioning of advocates and also class p- positioning of leaders in the pharmaceutical industry um, really affects what is treated as a problem that needs to be fixed, right? So you know, there were, um, when I started my research in late 2013, there was already uh, some awareness that these price increases were happening, but it was not something that was publicly talked about. Um, It was something people would kind of say, you know, um, person to person, um, but it wasn't something people were really writing down. Um, You know, I even um, noticed between, you know, when I was early in my research and then going back to, um, kind of look at sources later on, I even noticed that some, um, you know, blog posts and written commentary about this had been deleted. Um, so, you know, they're clearly indicating some concerns that, um, uh, there, there were clearly some concerns about kind of who was listening to um, conversations and concerns about price. Um, eventually, uh, these issues about price kind of became a public issue and became something that advocates and advocacy organizations were really talking about and treating like a problem. Right. And so this came up in 2016 um, uh, and 2017. So right around the time when uh pharma bro Martin Shkreli was in the, spotlight for raising uh, prices on Daraprim and other drugs that his companies acquired um, right around the time when Elizabeth Holmes uh, was kind of unmasked as um, as, uh, lying about the technology that her company was making and uh, kind of seeking to make a profit in various sort of ethically dubious ways, right? So there was a, a large conversation going on in 2016 or so about drug pricing Um, And so it really did come to the fore. Um, But again, you know, the kinds of solutions that you saw proposed by pharma companies, by large advocacy organizations, um, were often targeted at um, reducing the cost of getting epinephrine auto-injectors for people who already had insurance. Um, so things like co cards, which decrease the out-of-pocket amount that people with health insurance would pay, um, which uh, doesn't necessarily address the needs of people with no insurance, right? There are uh, various types of charity programs directly from pharmaceutical companies that might cover some of those costs as well. Um, but those are very limited, um, and so in a country where a not insignificant proportion of people um, are struggling to pay health insurance premiums or don't have health insurance, you know the fact that that uh, solutions proposed are. For people with health insurance, um, you know, again, indicates a particular perspective on what it means to live with food allergies. Um, what it uh, and and what kind of rises to the level of a problem in, in need of a solution, or whose problems are in need of solution, right? People with health insurance, but maybe not the best health insurance, uh, are are again the targets of interventions of like uh, like. Copay discount cards, Um, but it excludes um, other types of people. so, so again, that was kind of, yeah. You know, that's the kind of 2013 to 2016. But since 2016, um, we've also seen um, a great deal of new research. And um, even in the last couple of years, uh, finally, FDA clearance for um, actual treatments of the underlying disease mechanism of food allergy. Um, so treatments for peanut allergy, uh, in particular. Um, and so in some ways, this is a game changer, right, for people who have access to those medications, again, who can afford some of the costs that go along with them. Um, and in some ways, um, it doesn't change a lot at all. Um, so while you're on these treatments, they're very long-term treatments. They slowly train your immune system to stop having allergic reactions. You still need to carry an EpiPen uh, or an AvivQ or some other kind of epinephrine autoinjector Um, You still need to be vigilant about unexpected sources of your allergen, like peanut, um, because the treatments work by uh, feeding very precisely measured amounts of the things you're allergic to. Um, So you have to be careful that you're not ingesting uh, more, at least in the early stages. Um, So um, again, it's a tool in the arsenal. Um, It's a big change. It's a big change in the science. Um, But there's still not a silver bullet. It, right, it's still something that people have to live with and manage, um, and often again need help um, from friends and family members, um, and in the case of children, from other caretakers as well. Um, so you know, and this is maybe another lesson to get back to your last question of food allergy: um, is that um, it is something that's easier to manage in community or with a village, right? Um, It's going to be a lot less stressful if you know you have a number of caretakers or a number of friends who can cook for you or for your child uh, and can do so safely. Um, It's going to be a lot easier if you know that um, caretakers um, have the time and are well paid enough that they can be really up to date on how all of these treatments work and the risk that a child might face. Um, if they have a food allergy uh, to a common food. Um, so, again, I, I think it really kind of hits home that, um, you know, we often want to individualize um, health problems in the United States, um, but uh, really a, a kind of long-term communal solution is still, you know, the best game in town for managing food allergies.
0: Yeah. Uh, so... To kind of close out our time together, uh, what are some of the things you're working on now? Where Where is your research taking you next?
1: Sure. Um, that's a great question. So, the nice thing about summer as an academic is that you get to find answers to these kinds of questions. Um, you know, there are a couple of uh, threads of this project that I'm uh, kind of really interested in and, and formulating some new work on. Um, you know, one thing that I've done a little bit of thinking about is, um, again, how some of the politics of care uh, in my food allergy work relate to um, other settings. Um, So, for example, um, I've done a little bit of writing, um, kind of extending this work into the politics of care uh, and household division of labor uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, and especially in the first year when schools were closed and a lot of people were living in what we... Semi accurately call lockdown. Um, another thing that I'm really interested in um, is the relationship between parents, especially feminized caretakers like mothers, the relationship between parents and experts. Um, so, what kinds of information are parents? interested in translating from scientific theory into their own lives, what types of information um, are they more willing to push back on or ignore? Um, So I've been really, um, you know, interested in this, especially uh, for kind of babies and young children, again, drawing on my own experience a little bit. Um, uh, but, but especially thinking about kind of sleep and feeding advice. There's great historical work on the history of kind of expert advice for child rearing um, that I've really started thinking about and, and tapping into and definitely thinking about that as I formulate some new work. Um, and third, I'm also really interested in how digital technologies are mediating these expert parent or expert mom relationships. Um, so for example, there are so many apps that you can use to track your baby's feeding or to teach you how to teach your baby to sleep. And I'm really interested in, in kind of what those are doing for parents. Um, you know, I think I think some of them are solving problems that are actually social problems or actually problems with uh, the misfit between American capitalism and child rearing. <laughs> um, I think there are some issues around the, the sort of pace or the time that Parents are uh, required to uh, to work even when their children are very young. That a lot of digital technologies are trying to fix, for example. Um, but I'm also interested in how they fit into parents' aspirations for their children. Right? Um, you know, aspirations bigger than you know the birthday party, the summer camp, the after school programs that I heard a lot about in my food allergy research. Um, you know, how do digital technologies? Um, Uh, kind of tracking or offering advice for children's health, tap into, um, you know, class mobility anxieties uh, that parents might have or uh, anxieties or hopes about different styles uh, or levels of schooling, right, about getting into colleges or getting into the right high school. Um, You know, I think. I think there's kind of something, uh, there's something there, There, there's something about digital technologies for organizing your child's life that like, I think is tapping into some of these larger social anxieties and anxieties about social mobility and education um, that I'm really interested in finding out more about. So those are some of the things that I've been sitting with and that I am formulating hopefully some new work to do uh, later this year.
0: Awesome. Well, you know, at some point in the future, I I hope that you have another book and and we're able to talk about some of some of those pieces as well. Uh, So thank you so much for your time. And uh, it's been great to, to talk with you. Great. Thank you so much, Adam.